give our praise. Listen, before you're seated, I'm excited to be here. Well, go ahead and be seated. I'm uh, back from vacation for a couple weeks. Uh, love being away. Uh, we watch the live stream when we're gone, but it's just not the same as being with you. Um, we got away, and uh, uh, my wife uh, talked me. We were in Colorado, and she talked me into climbing this mountain. It was a 10,000-foot mountain, and uh, two and a half hours, we walked a part of it straight up, and I got there, and I realized I was closer to heaven. And I said, Lord, why don't you go ahead and just take me right now? I don't want to have to walk down this big mountain again. But we had a, we had a really good time. Got to see my grandson, and uh, uh, he, uh, uh, we recorded him saying bye-bye for the first time. So that was pretty cool. And my daughter, Rebecca, decided she wanted to modernize me a little bit, so she got me some, she got me some socks here. So I don't know, you know girls kind of do their pants like that. I don't know if I should do that or not. It looks kind of, no, all right, all right, I won't, I won't. Hey, next week, 4th of July week, we're going to be talking uh, about America's Christian heritage. A lot of confusion over this. Church in Dallas put uh, America's a Christian nation on a billboard, and they got all sorts of backlash called hate speech. We'll talk about it next week. The week after that, I want to start a series called Call to Fall. Number two, Call to Fall, and it's about prayer. It's about deepening your prayer life, helping understand prayer, and uh, I think it'll be a great blessing. But today I want to begin Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, if you have your Bible. This is the passage Martin Luther, you remember Martin Luther in the Middle Ages, he was a Catholic priest, and it was time for a revival. The church had gotten misdirected, leaning a little more towards works as opposed to the grace of God. And, 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 and he made a statement. He actually wrote it down, and he tacked a thesis to the wall of a church, and it gave birth to what's called the Protestant Reformation. And this was the scripture that, that, that encapsulated his thinking. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, by, I want you to say this with me, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so no one may boast. The biggest word here is the word saved. People in the world don't understand it. Uh, it means no nothing to them. But for the one whose eyes have been opened, who understands God and his ways, to be saved means to be delivered from the power of sin in this life and forgiven in the next. It means that God will not judge us for our sin. It means that what Adam and Eve messed up in the garden, we were, it's been restored through Jesus Christ. But I want you to see that this is a gift. And the key word I'm going to look at is the word grace. We're going to talk about it. Uh, the scripture says we can't work our way into heaven. We can't do enough good things. Christians do good works, but good works don't get them to heaven. It is an act of our faith and believing in Christ that's caught up in this word grace. And this is the word I want to focus on. I've actually entitled the message Amazing Grace. And grace by definition simply means the unmerited favor of God. It is God's kindness to the undeserving. God's kindness, and that's all of us. God's kindness to us in spite of our sin. God's kindness to us in spite of the evil that we've done. God's kindness to us in spite of the way that I've hurt people, in spite of the way that I've lied, in spite of the way that I've cheated. God still would show kindness to me, not as his approval, but his willingness to change my life. Uh, it, it is free and undeserving. And we want to understand grace today through this song, Amazing Grace. Uh, John Newton wrote it. John Newton was a former slave captain 
perhaps the most despicable job there ever was. And I want to show you a little video. It was by Chris Tomlin, a, a Christian songwriter. But in the background of this video, you'll see some images and their own sailing ships. And these ships are to remind us of John Newton who was converted to Christ and after his conversion he fought against the slave trade and he had a friend named William Wilberforce and he was the force in the British Parliament that helped stop slavery in Great Britain. So I think this will bless you. Listen to Chris Tomlin and Amazing Grace. Amazing grace. Let's explore John Newton a little history first. John Newton was born about 300 years ago, and he ended up the captain of a slave ship, and he converted to Christianity in a violent storm. It was trouble around him. It was a storm that made him realize, I can't get through this on my own. I need God. And the God that he learned about from his mother in his childhood began to come real to him again, and he converted to Christ. His was such a radical conversion that he became a minister in the Church of England, and rather than driving a slave ship, he began to fight against the horrible institution of slavery. When he wrote this song, it was written as a poem. And as we look through the verses of it today, it, 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 you'll see that it was written uh, because back then most people were illiterate. They couldn't read and, and, and it helped them to remember. It helped them understand spiritual truths through a poem. Uh, he became great friends with uh, the man named William Wilberforce. And God brought them together and God used one to, to be the hands-on who touched slavery and the one who had a voice in the Parliament of England. And together God was able to use them to stop that horrible institution. But Amazing Grace was written, or it was put to music in 1835, not many years ago. But today it's the most popular song, the most popular Christian song in the world. They'll even sing it in bar rooms. Come on, you see it on television in times where people that you know are not really serving the Lord, but they feel something about the love of God in it. Grace is not a cover-up for sin. How many know it matters how we live? Sure it does. Grace is not a cover-up for sin, but grace is in the midst of our sinfulness. God wants to love us and bring us out of it. But I want you to go back with me and just imagine a little bit about his involvement in the slave trade. I'm sorry I don't have a map, but if you can imagine a flat picture of the world, if the Americas are over here, if Europe is here and Africa is here, here's how this slave triangle would work. Europe was the manufacturing part of the world at that time. They're the ones that produce most of the goods. And John Newton would, would, uh, would start in, there in Europe, 
and he was loaded ships full of things that Europe had produced, he'd go to Africa and he would unload most of the production and he would take on slaves. They would buy slaves and they would take these men, women, and children and they would take them to the Americas and they would trade them for raw elements of production, cotton and other materials, and these elements would go back to Europe and they would do more manufacturing. So you had the manufacturer, you had the slave, you had the raw goods, and that's what became uh, how, how the early world was, was, was uh, their economy flourished. And here you've got a guy that's a slave trader. Now, let's speculate a little bit what it was like. Imagine if he was starting his journey. The journey would take a number of months. I'm sure he had a nice, beautiful home. How many know sinful pursuits in life can also make you rich, often make you rich? And he was doing this. I'm sure he lived in a nice home. I'm sure he, had, he drank all he wanted. He had a wild life, I would imagine, from what we know about him. But he got on that ship, and as he got on that ship, I would suggest to you that he probably saw blood on the deck that they couldn't scrub off from a slave that was beaten that tried to start a revolt, and they probably beat him to death on the slave on that ship to be an example to the other couple hundred slaves that was on that boat. They killed him and threw him off, and the blood was staining there. I suggest that just like an airline pilot, when before they take off, they walk around their plane and they look at it. He walked around that ship to make sure that it was sturdy and secure and wouldn't leak, Imagine the stench that he smelled underneath. It was literally hundreds of people. They were boxed in small compartments. They were chained there. They didn't have hygiene like we know and enjoy today. You can be sure that when people were seasick, they vomited. There was diarrhea. It was a smell you couldn't get rid of just like a skunk. If you have a dog and he gets a skunk on him, I don't care what you do or how many times you wash him, you still smell the stench. And he walked in the midst of that when he would take his ship and he would go begin picking up people. It was probably an occasion where he might see a little child that was chained to his mom and they're separating mother and mother and father and that little baby is probably begging, please, sir, please don't separate me from my mommy. Please, my, please, sir. Tears coming down his eyes and the chains probably rubbed blood on him, but his heart is hardened. It's likely that there was one of the slaves could have been a beautiful woman and as she gets on the ship, the men are aroused. Perhaps he even said, we'll take her and she'll be our own. We'll keep her for the crew. And her husband watches helplessly. On that ship, disease was rampant. One in five slaves died the horrible death. When they died, they would just throw them over the edge. In the middle of that profession was a storm raging, and he met God. That is what amazing grace does. It takes us in our brokenness, and it changes us. It turns us from a slave trader to, a, to one who hated the slave industry. God's grace has the power to change. But this is not just a message of history. It's a message for you and I. Because I would suggest all of us have done things we're somewhat ashamed of. Come on now. All of us have a secret side, a dark side, things that we remember, perhaps in our long ago past or perhaps in our recent past. But here's the word I proclaim to you today. And no matter how evil we are, no matter how bad we are, no matter what wretched things we do in life, Jesus is able to transform us and change us on the inside and make us into the person that he created us to be. I want to tell you today about God's amazing grace. Let's explore it together. What we're going to do is, again, as I said, this was written as a poem, and, but it was all, it was communicating the Bible to people that would read it. So let's try to see the Bible in Amazing Grace. Uh, I'm going to show you each verse on the screen. We'll talk about it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a, a wretch. We'll talk about that. That saved a wretch like me. 
I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You see the, the symmetry in the rhyming of the, of the first verse. How sweet the sound, but now I'm found. A wretch like me, now I see. It was a mnemonic thing to help people remember it. But when he said, I was lost and found and blind and see, what was he talking about? He was talking about his conversion to Christ. See, he knew that the life, something happened to him. He was taught as a boy the Christian faith. He was taught the Bible. He went away from it. But he entered into blindness. And I suggest to you, every one of us in our sin are blinded by our sin. And when Jesus comes to us, we don't, we don't become a Christian or get saved or born again just because it became a rational thought for us. No, God draws himself. God reveals himself. God takes the blinders away and we say yes. I talked to a friend, that would, uh, 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 know a person, and when he was converted, he said, before I was converted, I slept around with as many people as I could. I smoked as much pot as I could and drank as much as I could. And then he said, when I got saved, I quit drinking. My girlfriend wanted to fool around. I wouldn't do it because I was going to be pure from then on. And after a while, God delivered me from marijuana. Now, how many know conversion happens and God changes us? Thank God for 12-step programs and all the things that help. We have a tremendous Celebrate Recovery in our church. But I'm telling you, friends, there's something more than anger management classes that are needed. There's something more than programs. I'm telling you, the power of God can transform a life. We can be blind, but then see. This word, when he said, amazing grace, that saved a wretch like me, we don't use that word much today, but let's think about to be wretched. To be wretched means to be a miserable, worthless person. And you know what? You may not even know it. There are gang members today that are wretched, doing wretched and worthless things and don't even know it. The definition goes on to say they do immoral and degrading things. There are drug dealers in Cross Texas, Canada today that are getting kids and other people hooked on methamphetamine. They are destroying their lives and their heart to heart, and they don't even realize they're wretched. I saw this week something that I could not believe. It was on Twitter. It was picture, six different, five or six different pictures, and they only had it up 12 hours before they took it down. But regarding the crisis on the border, you know, all the th we'll talk about that a little bit today, but the, 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 the immigration and separating children and all that, well, in this little picture on Twitter feed, it was six pictures teaching parents on the border how to kill an ICE agent if they took their children. That is wretched. I saw a picture this week of two women that are very against our president. They have the right to be, certainly. One of them was uh, supposedly a former hooker that uh, he was with, and the other one uh, was a comedian that doesn't like him. Both of them lifted their middle finger to wave at him and use the F word to our president. Whether you like him or not, I mean, that's not the issue here. Something's wrong with behavior like that. In our society, we're becoming more violent in terms of our political beliefs. We're trying to get our, uh, get our ways. We're threatening people. Death threats come to politicians regularly. And there's a spiritual thing going on in this. But this is the word. This is what it means to be wretched. But here's what I want you to understand. People act in wretched ways because of sin. Their eyes are blinded just like mine were and yours were. Punch your neighbor and say, you know you're guilty. Now come on, lighten up a little bit. All of us were caught by this. Psalm 51 says, I was born. But you're born again as a new creation in Christ. 
We inherited this from Adam and Eve, the sinful nature. He said, from the moment my mother conceived me in my DNA, sin was somehow passed to me. This is the root of all problems in human behavior. I suggest to you, if you're a psychologist, a sociologist, if you work with people, the root of this is not the secular solutions that we come up with. They're often in the periphery. The root of the problem is sin has, heart, it has root in the heart of man. Why would someone hate someone just because of the color of their skin? It is irrational. It comes from sin inside of our hearts. We learn to hate and we propagate hate for no rational reason whatsoever. Listen, sin is behind this. But my friend, here's the deal. All of us sinners are the same. I'm as guilty in the eyes of God as anyone that I've just described. I may have on some fancy socks this morning and a suit. But come on, friends, without Jesus, I'm a sinner. But with Jesus, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God, trying to become the person he wants me to be. Here's his second verse. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." What could that mean? He learned to fear God. He realizes that he would be accountable for his actions. He realized that he had sinned against a holy God and judgment would come. But notice what it says next. Grace, my fear is relieved. In other words, God says, when I forgive you, I take your sins away from you. When I'm adopted as a child of God, listen, there's no judgment day for me when I'm going to stand condemned before God. I mean, no, our judgment day is going to be a great day where Jesus is saying, come on in. My son has paid the penalty for your sins. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace, my fear is relieved." Now listen to this. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. You're not born a Christian. You're born again as a Christian. It is a defining moment in your life. It is a point in time. If I could illustrate this way, if the cross is the representation of Christ, all of us are born going independent from God. Some of us, my wife, she was a sinner. Okay, I'm sorry about this, but I'm going to tell this on you. When she was in her teenagers, the worst thing she ever did is went in a nightclub with her sister, and she smelled people smoking cigarettes and saw people drinking, and she left. That's the worst thing she did in her life. <laughs> On our honeymoon, she wouldn't drink a glass of champagne. I mean, you know, I mean, she, she's a godly girl, but she's still a sinner. Me, on the other hand, I was wild and crazy, getting wilder and crazier, and my life going in a ditch and didn't even know it until somehow the grace of God appeared to me. And the grace that I heard in that little country Methodist church that I'd memorized John 3.16 from my Sunday school teacher awoke within this young man that was walking away from God and destroying his life. And I turned around and said, Jesus, I want to follow you. That was the hour I first believed. I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of the living God, that He lived a perfect life. He died a substitutionary death for my sins. In other words, He paid the penalty for my sins. It's like if you owe a, a car payment and you don't have the money, they're going to repo your car, and Jesus writes the check paid in full. That's what He did for our sins. And to believe in Him is to follow Him, and it begins when we first believe. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. Look, look at the next verse. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Now listen to this. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. What is he saying? I've come through many dangers and snares in my life, 
I could have got killed in knife fights. I could have got killed in a storm. I could have drowned when I went to the sea. I could have, I could have starved when we got off course. But somehow I was kept safe, and it was the grace of guess who? It was the grace of God. Now, you understand this. For a man that was living as a wicked sinner, God still had his hand on his life. It did not mean he approved what he did, but God knew in, by the doctrine of predestination and his foreknowledge that one day John Newton would turn to Christ, and God watched over him, come on now, when he didn't even know it. I have had two profound uh, times in my life when I was living away from God in my late teenage years. One time I was driving a car and I was a millisecond away from getting killed. I pulled out across, I'm not going to tell you what I was doing, none of your business, but I pulled out between two cars that were going 60, 70 miles an hour this way and I just zipped right between them. They both slam on brakes. It was a miracle. God's hand was on my life. Another time I was doing something, none of your business what it was. I was in the car. A policeman was there. I should have been arrested, but the policeman had no clue what was going on. Not because I was smart enough to hide it. It's because God somehow in his sovereignty just watched over me like he did watched over John Newton. Come on now. In the midst of his evil, and it's hard for me to wrap my round around that, but I can tell you there's a loving God, and even if you're running away from him, he's watching over you, and he's waiting for that day till you first believe and turn your heart to follow him. I remind you the scripture that says God is an always, always helps us in time of trouble. Let me give you another one. Uh, the Lord, uh, the fourth stanza, the Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope secures. He's promised good to me. My hope is secured in the promises of the Bible. He's my shield and he's my portion as long as life endures. What's he saying? John Newton said, the basis for my hope was in the promises of God recorded in the Bible. He's not the only one that said this. Psalm 119, David said, you, God, are my hiding place, my shield. I, I hope in your word. Hope, my friend, is the most precious commodity you have when you're at the end of your rope. Lack of hope is what makes people pull the trigger or hang themselves. Lack of hope is what makes people give up and quit. Lack of hope makes people walk out of a marriage. Lack of hope makes people do, uh, give up in life. When I was in a dark time and I was having a struggle with an anxi uh, anxiety, uh, that's a simple way to say it, but I'll tell you, in my, I was just falling apart on the inside. After my wife had breast cancer, doctors helped me a little bit, but they didn't take it away. I had a good counselor that didn't help. My, my willpower was not enough to keep me going. You know what kept me going in my darkest days? Philippians 1.6. Yes, and it says, God began a good work in you. And listen, God will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. If you have never been a place in your life where you have been helpless to go forward, I pray to God you never will be. But if you are, you can find, come on, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. You can read the Bible not just as a history book, but the Bible tells of itself it is living, it is alive, it is active, and it is powerful. You can find hope in God's Word just like I did and like John Newton did. Uh, let me digress just a moment and talk about the relevance of the Bible in our modern-day world. Let me talk about it in the context for just a moment of, of what's happening on our southern border and the immigration and, and separating families. It's, it is the hot button right now politically in America. Uh, but I want you to go back to the Bible and use this as a basis. Jesus Christ said in his prayer to God the Father, he said, your word is 
truth. Your word is truth. Paul said in Timothy, all scripture, the Bible, is inspired by God. It is useful to teach us what is true and make us realize what's wrong in our lives. In other words, right and wrong, true and false, go to the Bible. Now, I want to suggest to you that as Americans, we have lost a common morality. We have lost a common sense of right and wrong. In the 60s, when, when Time Magazine declared God to be dead, and we threw out the Bible as the defining, as our Supreme Court said, take the Bible out of school, take it out of the public square, we didn't replace it with a common morality. And today we have political forces, primarily two in our two-party system, that push against each other all the time. And much of what we hear is not always what's true. First time I began to hear about kids getting separated, I was angered. And, and then when I began to study a little more and read a little bit more, I began to realize how long it's been going on, that it had a lawful purpose behind it because the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals said that kids that are detained can only be held for 20 days. But if the parent is seeking asylum, that parent needs to appear before a judge, but only 10% of the parents appeared before the judge, 90% left. But you got to do something with the child and it's a mess. Could I give you four things that I wish I could say to people in power that would help us from the Bible? Number one is that families, the nuclear family, a mom and a dad and their children, come on, should be heralded in society as the basic building block of society. Uh, certainly all of us don't have that privilege to live in that situation, but that should be our goal. And I'm glad America is thinking about family now. The second thing I'd tell you is compassion and love should drive every, the context of every decision. It is rooted in the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. But here's the third thing where I will veer from much of American politics. We have lawlessness in America today. Jesus, lawlessness by definition is simply defying the law. It is an independence that I will do what I want to do and no man will tell me what to do. It is the Twitter feed that showed people how to take a knife and stab it in an ice agent because they were, had the, to dare to take their children. It is lawlessness in America today. Lawlessness in the Bible is defined as doing what's right in your own eyes. That, that's not addressed in America today. America is founded as a nation of laws. And the last thing I would tell you from the Bible is the term justice or to make just decisions regarding our policies based on those three things, that families should be kept together. And how many know, listen, there are literally tens of thousands of kids separated from mom and dad because of the prison system today. Yeah. There's kids separated all over America. You realize one of our government welfare programs that were intended to help lower income people, AFDC, actually served to get dads out of homes. See, and would pay moms more if there wasn't a man in the home, if there wasn't another breadwinner in the home. We've got a lot of things to discuss as family. Family is important. Confesh uh, compassion and love are what matters, but lawful policies and rules, come on, based on biblical truth. Here's what our, word says, uh, our world says today. We have no anchor in America, but our founding fathers, as we'll talk about this in next week's message, our founding fathers had a constitution, but they built it, and I'll show you this next week, they built it on the Bible. The commentary that, 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 uh, that guided all the legal minds of their day was Blackstone's legal commentary, and it was a virtual compilation of the Bible. So if they had issues, for example, abortion or whatever else, or issues of morality, if the Constitution didn't spell it out, they would go to God's Word and see what was true and false and what was right or wrong. I think you'll learn something next week. That's my little digression for today, but let's get back to John Newton. Um, the fifth one. 
When this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease. In other words, he's talking about dying. I shall possess within the veil a life of What does that mean? It means all of us are going to die, but there's a veil you'll go through after death for the Christian, and you'll find joy and peace. When you leave this sanctuary today, you'll go through a veil, you'll go through a door, and you'll be in another dimension. You'll be in another room. You'll be in another place. And I want to suggest to you, friends, it's a great promise that you and I have today. All of us will die. We don't think about it, but the older you get, come on, old folks, the older you get, the more you think about it. You're looking at me like a cow staring at a new gate. The older you get, the more you think about it because you realize you can't take enough supplements to be healthy. You remember your hero, Jack LaLanne, many, many years ago, the healthiest man in the world? He's dead. You, at some point, you can't stop it, but there's a life of joy and peace on the other side. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said in John 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And the book of Revelation says God is going to live with us. He's going to dwell with us. And God will take away every tear. Come on now. God will wipe away every tear. The Bible says there'll be no more dying, no more crying. There'll be no more pain for the former things have passed away. Can I tell you, friend, something good is coming on the other side of that veil. And it's because of the grace of God. Give him a big hand this morning. Let me wrap up and we're going to have communion together. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. What does that mean? We were in Colorado and we saw the mountains, but there were still pockets of snow, and yet the ski slopes had grass growing on them. And he's talking about snow melting like the earth. He says, one day the sun won't shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. Where did he get that? 2 Peter 3.10 says the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done, it will be exposed. What does that mean? There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Listen, I'm all for saving the planet and being a good steward, but one day it's going to be gone. One day your home is going to be gone. One day everything you know on this earth will be gone. Your car, your truck, your turkey gun. But can I tell you this, friends, what's done for Christ will last forever. And let me read to you his last verse, which is my favorite. He says, when we've been there 10,000 years. I'm 61, and I look a lot different than I did when I was 18. I had a big afro, and I was throwing a football, and I had some muscles. And I look in the mirror today and say, what happened? Why don't you just hang just one second before you serve it? I say, what happened to me? See, life reaches an end. But then he says this, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. You see, when we leave this life, we're going to experience eternity. And in eternity, come on, you don't lose your hair. Eternity, eternity, you don't grow in places you don't want to grow. Are you with me today? In eternity, things don't fall out and begin to sag. In eternity we'll have a resurrection body that will be forever with the Lord. See, the great promise John Newton knew was John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. Come on, give him a big hand today. He's worthy of praise.
They're going to serve communion now, these elements representing the body and blood of Christ. I want you to hold on to it. If you like, just put your glass on the ground until we, until we partake, and we'll all partake together. But as we do, I want to go back to John Newton, and I want you to keep your attention on me for just a moment. Ten minutes, we'll all be gone. You can buy me lunch, and then we'll, we'll be off today. Just kidding. Newton's mother. Newton's mother was a Christian, and she taught him the Bible as a boy. But I want you to think about this now. We've talked about Newton as a vile slave trader. But when he was seven years old, his mom died from tuberculosis. Seven years old. He had a daddy, and his daddy was a sea captain. So at 11, he quit going to school. And he went out to sea with daddy. Have you ever heard the phrase, cuss like a sailor? A sailor? Yeah. I bet you John picked up some of that. Because you see, you don't just wake up one morning and become a slave trader. I'm sure he was conflicted when he, re he remembered his mom, a loving mom. I'm sure he prayed for her. And she died. Sometimes evil gets in the world. And whether you're young or old, you can't understand why God let something happen. But I imagine something snapped on the inside of this boy. 11 years old, he's riding the, the, the seas with his father. When he gets a little older, he's conscripted in the, the British Royal Navy. But he's described as a deserter. He was a young rebel. He deserted the Navy. They kicked him out. And now he's discharged to a slave, a slave trading ship. So why do I say that? I want you to hear this. All of us have a chain of events that lead us down a path of sin. All of us have things that happen, but by God's grace, we can turn around. In my own life, when I was in the ninth grade, I, I, I went to a Methodist church. I was taught right and wrong. My grandfather was an alcoholic. He would get drunk at night, drove the uh, truck into the house one night. I knew the effects of alcohol. But at 19, after a district championship game, I was the second baseman. I was in a car. We didn't ride the bus then. I was in a car with a car of seniors. So we stopped at the, at the beer store and got a couple six-packs of Schlitz beer. It's the first time I'd ever had a beer shoved towards me, and peer pressure made me take it, but I decided I wouldn't drink it. Can I be honest with you? I'm going to do it anyway. I decided I wouldn't drink it. And every time they put it to their mouth, I'd put my, and it tasted nasty. I'd just touch my lips with it. But after a while, they'd throw theirs out the window to sign, and I'd throw mine out. The only problem is mine was full of beer, and they caught me. And I so much wanted to fit in that group of people, I took a step in that direction. And a few years, not a few years, a few months after that, came part of my life. And then my best friend growing up was smoking something, and it wasn't a Winston or Pell Mell or anything else. And I was in the car with him, and I thought, I'm not doing this. And I got out. But he called me back again, and I got out. And the third time, I got in again. Come on. You're looking at me like you're so holy today. But the third time he got out, I mean, the third time he asked me to come, I stayed a while. And before you know it, my whole life had changed, and it was not a good direction. And I started going away from the cross that I knew. My life started going down. I was a straight-A student in high school. First year of college, I made a D in chemistry, and then I quit college. Are you with me? My friends became scuzzier. My ambition was shriveling. But all of a sudden, in the middle of that, I found what John Newton found. God called to me. God called to me. 
I found amazing grace. John Newton found this turnaround. He was a slave trader, but he ended up writing 280 hymns. You know, he became a Christian minister of the Church of England. The guy that did all those horrible, evil things became a preacher. He wrote 280 poems or songs for people to sing about Jesus. And then he got connected with William Wilberforce, and the two of them stopped the slave trade in the British Empire. Think about that. Slave trader to slave stopper. As he lived his life, the Bible said he never stopped wondering about the grace of God that saved, as he called himself, an old African blasphemer. And not long before he died, he preached in a loud voice, My memory's nearly gone, but I remember two things. I'm a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Alzheimer's, dementia, slapping him down, but he's realizing he's going through the veil. My text this morning was this. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Nobody can do enough good works to go to heaven. But my friend Jesus offered a way through his death on the cross. It is called the kindness of God to those that don't deserve it. The Bible says if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. I can't give enough money. I can't do enough good things to earn my way in heaven. All I can do is to fall before the cross of Christ and say, God, I'm a wretch, a sinner. Forgive me. And today... I believe in you. I believe you're the Son of God. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose again. And I believe you're coming as my Savior one day, and I'm going to follow you. See, this is the turning point. Do I go away from God or go towards Him? Perhaps today is the hour you'll first believe. Here's how we'll close our service. They're going to sing this song, Amazing Grace. And I really pray the words that we sing will bring life to you today, that it will bring a joy to you that are Christians, to you that know the Lord. But perhaps you're here today and you'll say, Pastor, I've not yet made that turn to God. If I died today, Pastor, I don't know if I'd go to heaven or hell, but I want to get right with God. Maybe you're here today and say, Pastor, I want this to be the hour I first believe. Maybe you've believed in God in the past but got away from Him. And today you want to restore your faith in Christ. If those are you, as we begin to sing this song, I'm going to ask you to just take a courageous step out of your chair and come and meet me at the altar. You say, Pastor, why should I do that? It's because there's something powerful about walking away from the old life and stepping into the new. It's not joining a church, but it's in your heart saying, I want Jesus, and I want the world to know. It'll be the best decision you've ever made. Let's sing it right now, Pastor Nick. Amazing grace. And let's all stand to our feet as we sing this song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And if you want to make a step to Christ today, if today is the hour you first believe, if you'd like to get your life right with God, slip out of your chair, I'll meet you at the altar. Let's begin to sing, Pastor. You come and let us pray for you today. Making a commitment to Christ today. Come meet me at the altar today. We'll pray for you. Getting right with God today, Pastor. Come let me pray. Don't be embarrassed or ashamed. Thank God. You come, let us pray for you today. God bless you, my buddy. God bless you today. God bless you. God bless you.
Come on, let's sing it. Others, you come today. I'm getting right with God today, Pastor. I'm getting right with God today. Every step to God is always a right step. You come, let us pray for you today. I used to walk with God, but got away from Him. Today I'm coming back. You come and we'll pray for you. How sweet the sound. What just happened? Four people said, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I need a Savior. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus. You know something I learned? If you can't follow Jesus in church, you'll never follow him out in the world. And that's why we ask people to come and make a step to the cross. We'll always meet you there. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 14. He said, I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed... He's in the upper room with his disciples. He took a loaf of bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke that bread and said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I don't believe this bread becomes something mystical or something transformational. It is a point of remembrance, a point of contact. And today, Lord, we would ask that you would reveal yourself to us in a greater measure. As we look at an empty cross, might it go deep in our heart and soul, the love that God has for us and the sacrifice that you were willing to make for us. You left heaven, you came to this earth, you took my sins on that cross to pay a penalty I couldn't afford to pay. So I thank you, Lord, today. I ask you to bless this bread and let it be life to me. I pray if there's any sick in our midst, God, we'd be miraculously healed. Bless this bread in Jesus' name. Let's eat together. Paul said in the same manner, after supper, he also took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant or promise from God in the blood of Christ. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The color of this cup is red. Reminds us of the blood of Christ. You say, why, Pastor? Why is that essential? The Bible teaches us in Leviticus that life is in the blood. Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. In other words, his life for mine. Life for life. Jesus, when he died on the cross, paid a mortgage payment I couldn't pay. Jesus Christ paid a car payment that was about to get repoed. I couldn't pay it. But he paid and he offers eternal life as we believe and follow him. As we lift our cup to heaven today, we receive God's forgiveness as we confess our sins. But today we also forgive people that have sinned against us. Don't hold bitterness in your heart. Don't hold animosity and hurt. Let it go to God today. Today, Lord Jesus, we know you're coming again. <laughs> Let's be ready. Let's drink together. Praise the Lord. Come on, somebody say praise the Lord. Hey, listen, we're going to sing this one last uh, chorus, and then we'll dismiss. Hang on to it until the chorus is over. Uh, our prayer team will be around the front. If you need prayer for anything, you come and we'll pray for you. I love you. Thank you for coming. And next week, we'll talk about America's Christian heritage. Come if you need prayer.